Lord, we do thank you for what you've been teaching us through this second letter to the Thessalonians. Thank you for some of the timely words and the importance of our future, the importance of Jesus returning, the importance of what we do now, reflecting what we know to come. Guard us, please, from simply being hearers and not doers. And we pray by your help, you would make us a church that lives these things. And we pray that we might do that as individuals as well in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, If you're just visiting or you've missed um, some of these last weeks, one of the big ideas we've used for much of this series has been that that thing I just prayed, that when you know what's coming then, then you know what matters now. So in week one, do you remember the guy who had thrown the party? He knew his parents were returning that morning, and so he knew he had to tidy the house. It was a no-brainer. He knew what to focus on because he knew what the future held. And when you know what's coming, you know where to put your energy. And yet, as Matt was explaining to the kids, and we saw last week, they got muddled in some way because there were claims that Jesus had already come back. And so it seems like some some people, a group within the church, had decided to put their feet up. You see, because if nothing's really coming, then nothing really matters. And we saw in week one that the Thessalonians were faithful And they were prepared to suffer. And they were facing opposition and oppression. We saw that at the start of chapter 1. They were feeling the cost of following Jesus. But now with this group among the church saying, he's already returned, you don't need to worry so much. Maybe doubts were being sown. And they're thinking, "Is is it worth it? Is it right? Maybe we've got it wrong. Maybe we've backed the wrong horse. But Paul's message to them and to us has been consistent. The plan has not failed, it's just not yet finished. Jesus has not returned, justice will be served. There is a future, keep going, hold your nerve. Or in the language of the letter, as the kids were seeing, 2 verse 15, stand firm. Stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you. And as they're to stand firm in chapter 3... Paul gives us a couple of glimpses of what that standing firm might look like, of how that reality might play itself out in daily life. And firstly, in verse 1 to 2, he gives us a couple of of prayer points, prayer points for Paul and his team that the Thessalonians might pray for them. And then secondly, in sort of 3 through to about 15 or 16, then he advises them on how to relate to these troublemakers within the church. This splinter group who are teaching things that are not right. So firstly, one to two, when you know what's coming, you know how to pray. Sometimes I have an imaginary conversation with Paul. And it asks him, what is the secret, Paul, of your success? How is it that God used you so powerfully, Paul? Something special about you. Come on, what is it? And in my imaginary conversation, the answer that he gives is, nope, nope, no secret, no special powers. It's just the normal Christian life, really. Just know that you are weak and that God is strong. 
and know that prayer works and so rely on him in prayer and so ask others to pray for you that you might rely on him in prayer. And as Paul writes that to the Thessalonians in these first two verses, he's not just filling space. This is no mere sort of spiritual platitudes that we expect from Paul, some vacuous words and niceties, oh, please do pray for me. He actually means it. He means it. We get these glimpses in various letters of the kind of things that Paul longs to be prayed for, the requests that he asks for. This is not just theory for Paul. This is real. This really drives his ministry. And when you know that Jesus is coming back and you know that prayer is important, then what sort of things does, prayer have, does Paul have us pray for? Two words for you. Um, spread and safety. Spread and safety. By spread, I don't mean butter. By spread, I mean the gospel going out, the gospel being spread around, which shouldn't really be a surprise for us. Because if Jesus is returning one day, if it's not just a philosophy or an idea, but actually he is returning and justice will be seen and the plan will be finished and this world as we know it will be wrapped up and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, then the fact that the gospel message goes out, it really matters. It's not just a hobby or an idea, it really matters. Do you remember the other image we've used week on week, the, the stark image of the Australian bushfire, and, and you can't outrun it. It's inevitable, it's coming. And there are warning rings and there are klaxons and your app on your phone is buzzing and it says move, it says move. Either move or the other answer... Well, the other answer is stand on a patch that's already been burnt. Find somewhere where the fire has already spent itself. That's their answer. Our answer? Well, stand in Christ. Stand in Christ where God's justice has already been satisfied, where God's judgment has already been seen. And, and there and only there you will be safe because you can't outrun the king returning. Which obviously means the spread of the gospel really matters and it must be a priority. Which is why Paul prays as he does, verse 1, Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you. And actually you can see that being worked out in Thessalonica. Their example is actually part of the opening of Paul's first letter. If you go back a few pages, you can see it. Um, we know from Acts 17, the start of the story, that Paul and Silas has to, have to leg it from Thessalonica because of um, persecution and opposition. But then at the start of 1 Thessalonians 1, we see how the story continues. And you see how the church received the gospel. And you'll see it's not just merely intellectual persuasion. This is totally transformative. Lives turned up like, upside down, never the same again. Verse, um, verse 6 to verse 8 of chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, page 1186. He writes, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. You see, it's God at work. This is why Paul prays, because he wants people who are willing to, to suffer and face opposition as they receive the gospel. But more than that, for the gospel message to ring out, to spread out from them. Which, of course, is us worth, just, worth us just pondering for ourselves. That we might be a people who would pray for the message of, of the Lord to spread rapidly in East Oxford, where we're based as a church. But more than that, as many of us will, will drive to gather here from Oxford and beyond. That actually the, the gospel would, in each of our lives, bear fruit. Sometimes we talk about this. Have a think about what you've got coming on this next week. What have you got coming up these next few days? Where will you be? Who will you see? What will you do? Think of conversations with different people that you will have over the next week or so. Maybe people at school, colleagues at work, maybe teams that you're a part of, maybe family, maybe sunflowers and buttercups, maybe your neighbours, maybe just, just randoms that you don't know about yet. Because how does the message spread? Well, it sounds obvious, but it spreads through words. And therefore, it spreads through our words. And therefore, those people that we spend time with, well, maybe there's an opportunity for the gospel to spread. So maybe it's that Monday morning routine or even that daily routine of praying that God would give us open doors this week, this day, to speak of Christ. Or maybe it's a step before that and it's praying that God would help us to want to pray for those opportunities because praying on Monday morning for that just sounds a bit scary. So pray that we might want to pray. Or even it's a step before that which is asking the question, why do I struggle to want to pray for open doors in the first place? What is it that I'm fearful of? What's stopping me praying that prayer that God would open doors that the gospel might spread? How about that as a thing for us leading up to Easter? Praying for a friend that we might share the gospel with or someone that we might invite to an event or something. Praying that the message of the Lord would spread rapidly and be honoured as Paul asks them to pray for him. So first word, spread. Second word, safety. It's there in verse 2, or well, the idea is there in verse 2, that we might be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith. And again, it's worth saying that in the Thessalonian context, they'll get what he means because they themselves have faced opposition and oppression as they receive the gospel. It's, it's really a practical prayer, isn't it? I think that slightly surprises me because I kind of think that while Paul, we know he's not one to shy away from conflict. He seems kind of brave and courageous and a little foolhardy. But it turns out here he... He's no superman. He's not simply able to rise above it. But a large part of his ability to do that, to face that conflict, 
was because he knew God's protection and his deliverance. We know that from, again, his, his first encounter in Acts 17 as he goes to Thessalonica. But elsewhere we see as well, Paul was very often hounded, followed around by people who would want to undo his work of ministry by physically assaulting him, but he would at times have to run from town to town to town. Elsewhere he will talk of a famous thorn in his flesh, which may well have been a person, an individual, whom the Lord allows to continue. It can be easy to almost romanticize Paul at times. Or at least assume that God's blessing will be seen in ease and getting things right and hurdles being removed and fruitful mission trips and provision of what's needed. And and yet here we get a glimpse into Paul's heart and priorities as he longs for safety and protection and deliverance. Friends, God doesn't promise us that we'll avoid hardship. But he does promise us that he'll be with us in the midst of it. Again, there are things there that we could be thinking about how we pray for ourselves and one another. But I suspect particularly as well for brothers and sisters around the world this morning, people who are fearful as they meet, who would probably want us to be praying similar things for them, that they might be safe, that they might be delivered. We'll be praying in a bit after this for the persecuted church. Actually, we pray for the persecuted church most weeks now at Magdalen Road. We'll be praying, I think, particularly for Christians in Mexico today. But maybe we can fold in some of these ideas as we pray for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who find it far harder to meet and to live as Christians. And so you see, when you know what's coming, then you know how to pray. You know what to pray for. We pray for the spread of the gospel. We pray for the safety of gospel people. But as well as that, you know how to live. And we get some more clarity on what's going on in Thessalonica. We're going to start off with the sort of positive aspect, if you like, the positive that Paul raises. And I think you get that either side of the chapter with a sort of bread either side, the introduction and the conclusion. Um, It's there from verse uh, 4 and 5 and then in verse 13 as well. Um, So verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Okay, and then verse 13, And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. So either side, we've got the positive. Paul is confident of their actions, and so he wants their heart to be directed in God's love and Christ's perseverance, verse 5. You see, it's not just a... It's not just a question of stoic resilience, of looking inside for strength, of the stiff upper lip and just trying a bit harder. Just keep calm and carry on, we say. But no, rather their ability to keep going is due to their hearts being in the right place. See that in verse 5? May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. When those things are our focus, then it's easier to keep going. Then it's more likely to happen. If if there's no petrol in the tank, however hard you push your foot down on the accelerator, eventually the car is going to splutter and stop. 
while service in our own strength never ends up lasting very long, does it? It just ends up being this cycle of boom and bust and boom and bust and boom and bust and good intentions and hopes, but then suddenly in our own strength we realise we can't keep going, we can't deliver. And so it's striking in verse 5 that Paul wants their hearts to be directed elsewhere. Directed to their Father in heaven and his love for us and his Son's perseverance for us. That is the fuel. That is the kind of fuel that means we will keep going. And when we try and live without that, I take it we all know from experience, it doesn't last very long, does it? When we do things in our own strength, it doesn't last very long. Perhaps Paul knows the tendency of our hearts to do that. And so verse 5, he wants to direct them into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Because the reality seems to be in Thessalonica that there are people who have slipped in who are a bit different. He describes them as being idle and disruptive. And so Paul's command for them seems to be what I've called avoid the deliberate disruptives. Okay, that's my name for these people, the deliberate disruptives. And we need to be clear, Paul is not just some sort of mean and harsh, big picture visionary guy who's not got time for small people, who's not got time for complicated people in church. But that's not Paul at all. Um, you can flip back again to First Thessalonians chapter 5 and let me read verse 14 to us. See, Paul is very pastoral and sensitive. He says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, notice this, warn those who are idle and disruptive. 1 Thess 5 verse 14. Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So again, there's a, there's a warning already in his first letter against these idle and disruptives. But then Paul is very concerned for other groups who are struggling, the disheartened, the weak, a patience with everyone even. Who are these idle and disruptive people? Who are these deliberate disruptives? Well, have a look down. They seem to be a group deliberately sponging off the church. I think verse 6, they've departed from the teaching of Paul and the apostles. Verse 11 and 12, that they're not busy, but busy bodies. They're clearly not earning their own food, but are scrounging food from others. What are we to make of this? As we're saying, it's pastoral situations are often complicated and we need discernment and humility. But I think in all contexts, we can draw a distinction between those who have um, legitimate needs and concerns and those whose needs and concerns are for a little less legitimate reasons. Paul is wanting there to be discernment within the church. And so his response in verse 6, they are to shun them. They are to keep away from them. But then it's striking in verse 14 and 15, I think it's the same people again. Take a special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy but warn them as you would a fellow believer. It's interesting, isn't it? Bridges are not burned, but there is to be a distance maintained from them. That they're still fellow believers, it seems. 
I think it's the same people, but they're to know something of the shame of being shunned for their actions. Paul wants this to help them to return. It says if, if you remove them from the situation slightly, if you keep away from them, then maybe the Lord will show them and they will return. And it's particularly stark, isn't it, because Paul's example was so different in Thessalonica. Paul's habit on missionary journeys usually was to not have a sort of tin to rattle to to collect cash from. Um, He wouldn't go into a place, ask them for money and preach the gospel to them. That's not how he did it. He would fund himself through work or through other Christians who would give, but often through work, um, very often tent making. It seems to be what we would call a bivocational ministry, but but he could have asked them for help. If you look at verse 9 of this passage, we did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Again, you get similar things in the first letter. It seems to have been a distinctive Paul thing, and you wonder whether the culture of the time was for the in a world of travelling truth salesmen, to, to not ask for money perhaps makes it look as if your truth is not very valuable. But Paul says, no, 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 that's not it at all. No, no, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Paul is deliberately countercultural. In a, in a culture of travelling truth salesmen, Paul does not ask for money to show that he's not in it for the money continues in um, 1 Thessalonians, your witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. And so you see on one side we've got Paul's example. Paul has ironically come to them bringing the message of the gospel, carefully labouring to avoid being a burden, to, to be a good model and an example. And now you've got these deliberate disruptives within the church causing problems completely opposite to what Paul was talking about and what Paul showed them. I suspect there aren't many in this room who are tempted to think that Jesus has come back and so to stop labouring, to be deliberately disruptive. Anybody want to raise a hand if that tendency towards that? Not you, Don Langley. To be idle and disruptive in church, though, is perhaps more common. We understand something of why it matters, though. Can you understand something of why being idle and disruptive in church matters? It's because it undoes the work of the gospel. What Jesus has brought together in Christ, as we trust him around the cross, so it pulls it apart. I was talking to a pastor friend, um, nobody you would know, probably, um, a situation in his church at the moment, and it's very sad. There are a group within the church who are who are very good at being critical and divisive, and indeed very good at not really being part of things. And it's painful, and it's so dangerous for this church. The little, the little off-the-record comments, or the little bits of gossip, or the tidbits, or the, the prayer points that actually mean we end up seeking to gather a little following around us and causing doubt and discord and division. It may not be deliberate, but it's very easy to fall into that. And that's a different reason than what we find in Thessalonians. But where Jesus does love to unite people, Satan does love to pull the church apart. 
As Christians, we are very good at being disunited, whether in local churches or more broadly. God's people, as God's people, we have an incredible track record of grumbling, dividing, moaning and sniping. You, you see it before Jesus, you see it after Jesus, you see it through the annals of church history. I want to say I think the Lord has preserved an extraordinary unity for us at Magdalen Road. In fact, it's incredibly humbling. We are quite different people from different backgrounds and experiences. There's a, quite a bit of diversity among us in all kinds of ways. And it's fair to say it's not been a season with no stress for us as a church. But it's extraordinary, I think, the way the Lord has upheld us and upheld our love for one another and, as far as I can see, kept us pretty unified. And I'm thankful to him for that. It's humbling when you see some people put other people first. Or when you see people loving in costly ways, serving, labouring, sweating, toiling, not being idle and disruptive. It's, it's a profoundly good and positive thing. I think it's what Paul would say in verse 13, never tire of doing what is good. I think I see that here. I think I see many who serve in extraordinary ways. But it's good for us just to say as well, we need to be careful. We need to take care. Each of us with our, our selfish self will have a tendency towards perhaps being idle or indeed disruptive. We want people to follow us. We want people to um, be around us, to not serve within the body, to, to pull the, the church apart in different ways. We've each got different things that we feel very strongly about that other people may not share, and those things can become divisive. And yet unity really matters, which I think is why Paul is so clear as he writes to them here. How do we mitigate against this? If the reality of our, our selfish hearts at times might be towards being idle, being disruptive. How do we mitigate against it? I think verse 5 helps us again. I think that in one sense is the, the foundation for the next section that we've just looked at. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. The solution to idle and disruptive tendencies, the solution to the selfish self is to know and reflect upon God's love for us and Christ's perseverance for us. Because it's at the cross there that you see the work of Jesus. In a sense, you see that he was not idle. In fact, you see his loving labour for his people. And indeed, it's at the cross that you see he was the one who brought unity. He was the one who brought back together a divided humanity. And perhaps when our hearts are directed towards those truths, increasingly so, then maybe they will trickle down into our daily lives and they will shape us more and more. And I'm not just saying we look to the cross as an example, although we do do that, but actually we look to the cross for our strength. We look to the one who laboured for us and who has united us and we remember that we are in him. And so verse 16 
May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Sorry, chapter 2, verse 16. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Let me pray for us. Lord, we confess. We confess how often we forget what's coming. And so we get muddled on what matters now. Help us with Paul to be those who pray and who want others to pray for us, that the gospel might spread, that the message would bear fruit, and that you would grant safety for those who share that message. And we pray as well for us. We we see this context and this situation in Thessalonians. We see the deliberate, disruptive people. And we see the way in which they are undoing the work of the gospel, the un- undoing the work of the cross, bringing disunity to something that you have united in Christ. And we pray that you would maintain unity among us at Magdalen Road. Might we be a people increasingly who, whose hearts are directed into your love for us and Christ's perseverance for us. People increasingly who, who have hearts set upon the cross. And might those truths work their way out in our daily lives, our corporate life together, but our individual lives as well. Help us please to be a church that never tires of doing what is good. In Jesus' name, amen.